This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Mike Pearson of Zodiac Watches. Mike, how you doing? Hi, Ariel. It's great to talk to you. It's been a while. It has been a while. Now, when I say of Zodiac Watches, of course, that's that's just your current role. You really are Mike Pearson of the watch industry, right? Well, for the longest time, it was just Bremont, but I think more the more that I've been with Zodiac and obviously I had a few years away from watches, yeah, I feel part of the community and I've missed it. Um, which was weird because when I stopped being part of the watch industry or, or took that decision through COVID, um, it was weird because I didn't feel like, like I wanted to be a part of it. You do it for so long. But now being back with Zodiac and, and being part of this community, especially you know, post-pandemic, it feels like I'm home. Now, I remember interviewing Jack Hoyer of, of, of Tag Hoyer Renown. And Jack is a very celebrated figure there. And of course, his family is the one that started. But he for many years, left the watch industry. I think he worked in the electronics world, I think at Philips, he said. And mm. then he returned. And he told me that when he left the watch industry, he learned so many things that he was able to take back. And I'm just curious, the time you spend away from the watch industry, because you love watches, you know the industry, I'm sure allowed you to reflect a little bit, maybe learn some new things. How was Mike different re-entering the watch industry than when you left it? Well, I'm certainly a lot older. I mean, I got into the industry when I was in my early 20s and really had no idea what I was doing. And I say that uh, with full honesty. Um, I was working out on cruise ships and that led to, to working with Ernst Benz. And I learned a lot through the 08 crash. And Leonid, if anyone's ever spoke to, to him, he's a, he's, a, he's a wealth of knowledge. He's a, he's a pot full of energy. And, you know, you learn things that we shouldn't have done. Uh, and also you try to learn the things that you have to do in tough situations. And that guerrilla mentality got me through a lot of different things. So I'll always be thankful for Leonid. Uh, but then you, you refine yourself, you find your, your rhythm. And especially when I left Ernst Benz and, and I, I joined Bramon, you, you kind of find your own identity and you tell another story a different way, or you find uh, a different level of luxury retailer or a new support group or someone like yourself. And so when I left the watches, the watch industry, um, it was a very, very sad time. Actually, you kind of leave it twice. You leave Bramon when you have a child and you realize that you can't give your love to your family the same way that you would because you've given everything to a watch brand. Uh, and then you try and find that middle ground again. And, and that's where I am now. So I've got to a point where I'm comfortable with, with who I am and what I can do and what I can offer. Whereas before, you kind of do have a little bit of imposter syndrome in some ways. Maybe where I started, it was because of my age. Maybe at some points, it's because of you know, there's other people that have different levels of wealth or knowledge, but in the end, you, you fit into every room, no matter who you are, if you care about what you're talking about. And so when I started to consult on the side with a few different brands, Zodiac became one of them. And when I was being asked by TJ McKnight, if anyone has ever met him, he's a great guy. He was tasked by Fossil with this Zodiac regeneration. When I was speaking to him, it kind of all came flooding back that you know these retailers, you know these complexities. You try to understand the, the market, maybe not just on selling, but also the, the trends of what I would look at. Because I, for the longest time, was just looking at one brand in one way. When you step back, you diversify your collection. You, know, you get Omegas, you get Vertex, you get everything in between. 
And then you start to fall in love with the industry all over again. So when I came back with Zodiac, it wasn't with a smaller brand. And I said this with all respect to Bremont, uh, when I started to the, the, to the brand that I left, that was obviously a lot bigger. But when I came to Zodiac, it looked like a, a clean slate, but with 140 years of history. So you've had all these bumps in the road or the, you get told no more than yes. But what was lovely with, with when I walked through the doors here at, in Texas, um, Fossil HQ, where they've got Zodiac and where they're being made, uh, over in Switzerland, where they're being designed and talked about and marketed, you get a really lovely sense of, we can do this. And this energy just came back into me that I've not felt since, well, 2012, I'm guessing. And that, for me, for my family, for my friends, and I think for the benefit of, of what we'll do for Zodiac in these first few years, is extraordinarily exciting. And it, it feels very fulfilling for me. Um, and so it's quite a spiritual, weird moment where you're I'm, I'm actually sitting in the office now. No one's here. It's after hours. And I just know what this place is going to give Zodiac, which will in, empower me to give hopefully back to the watch world. So, yeah, in a long answer, a short answer long, um, I've just come back a new man re-energized. No, that's great. And I want to explore that a little bit more because enthusiasm is such a big part of success in this industry. But I was also curious about what you learned from the rest of the world, right? Because the watch industry can be very insular in its practices, its mm -hmm. beliefs, its taboos. And sometimes you go to another industry and you're like, wait, that industry does it all the time and they wor it works out really well. Maybe we should do that in the watch industry or, or vice versa. You know what I mean? Like working in other spaces allows you to reflect on the watch industry business practices and through comparison, decide whether that's good or that's just silliness. We should we should get rid of that and try something else. Well, I think everyone does that. Every brand, every person who's in charge of a brand or works for a brand, they do their best practices because they believe in it. And I can never say that it's right or wrong. What I have always tried to believe is that I take every single person who comes up to a, I don't know, I could be in a store on the behalf of, of, a, of a store selling a brand, and that one person could be just important than the 1,000 people I might do a presentation for, or the, the, you know, the few hundred thousand that might listen to this podcast. When I left Bremont, um, I actually went into tech for a year, and I went into Zoom. I had no intention of doing this, um, but I was offered other roles within brands, and what I saw was it was the same type of conversation and the same type of person that I'd speak to, and in all honesty, Ariel, you know, you've known me for many years, that enthusiasm to do that wasn't there. So when I saw Zoom at a time when the world needed it, it was during the pandemic. Um, I was like, well, let's give this a go. And the, the guy I interviewed with, he's like, if this, if, 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 I, if we were a watch company, we'd have you right away. And I, but we're not, we're tech, what can you offer? And it was just that case of, well, I can only sell what I believe in. I know that no one ever needs watches, but we all love them for the same reason. But I, I truly believe that the world needs this right now. Let me learn like I learned the watch industry and let's see how it goes. And that, that really, really helped me see the world from a different side. And, you know, you're talking to people as big as some of the production companies that would get American Idol and they'd use Zoom. And, and I did that deal, which was amazing. You'd see your colleagues next to you talking to the presidential uh, candidate at that point and putting together their Zoom. And then you'd speak to a yoga instructor with, you know, two little licenses and they needed it just as much. And, and it kind of went back to that first impression of you are Joe, Joe Bloggs and you love, you want to hear about this watch or you are Mr. Corporate and you own six stores. Let me know how, how, why, how and why they should invest in this brand. So learning on a, on a bigger scale and seeing the size of Zoom and the amount of people it touched is one thing. And that, that never changed for me in terms of that, that, that same mentality of how to talk to somebody. 
What it did show me was that the watch industry really does look through, and I think we all did, I'm sure you might have done, but I definitely have. You look through the world through blinkers and you get very precious about how someone might look at a social media picture or how a watch could be released or, or, or maybe it is leaked. For me, at the end of the day, a customer, if you have a beautiful product with a great story and they believe in you and trust you, um, they're going to come to you no matter what. And sometimes the preciousness of the watch industry, which can sometimes come across as arrogance or, or maybe just single-mindedness, again, it's not a bad thing. But when it comes to that, that, that preciousness, remember there's a much bigger world out there. I mean, if you take all the watch industry together, it's still only as big as the fifth biggest pharmaceutical company in Switzerland. And, you know, it's a massive industry for you and I and for all the people that listen to this. But in the wider sense of it all, there's a big world out there. So I try and take the fun that I've always had within watches and the belief that I think these things are great, but also understanding that, you know, it could come and go in a second. So it, the, the pandemic was important for a lot of people, good or bad. A tragic or sad. And also sometimes you can find yourself. And I think for me, that's what I did. Yeah, I think it's interesting the way you, you know, approach it on a very deep motivational and psychological basis. You know, there's a lot of people who've asked me, I'm sure I've asked you, hey, the watch industry seems so cool. How can I get into that? Right? Because we go to <laughs> enthusiast events where there's a lot of enthusiasm and people buy watches to celebrate themselves and they're typically in a good mood about it. And a lot of people sort of get attracted to this environment. It can seem like a lot of fun, which it is. But I think the unspoken thing is that it's it's an enormous amount of hard work. It can be difficult on the ego. There's a lot of politics and personality uh -huh. conflicts. The sort of passion you have is what keeps you in it. It's not really the industry itself. Like no one I've heard has ever actually been that excited about the watch industry. You know what I mean? No, 100%. I know what you mean. But I mean, you, you, you know that the Basel went away a few years ago, but there was nothing better there was nothing better than that first day of Basel because you walked in and it was like the World Cup or the Super Bowl. You know, that was our event. That's when the whole world came together. Um, and those kind of, so you live for moments. You don't live for that plane ride that's 10 hours or you miss it or the, the Uber that doesn't quite get there. Or if you are in an Uber and the guy's got an attitude or the hotel's bad and there's no water pressure. There's, there's things about life which are awful, but we, I don't know about you, but I celebrate moments. So you could, I mean, I'll never forget when I opened up this incredibly huge um, company in the Caribbean for Bremont, it was Diamonds International. And, you know, at that point, Diamonds International probably are today still the biggest, you know, watch and jewelry retailer in the Caribbean, uh, arguably. But for them to you know, have faith in me personally and the story I was telling, I remember I called up Nick and, and Giles. I was like, we've got the Caribbean. And to their credit, they were like, great. But also they don't realize it because... That was my life for, for many, many years when I was very young, working away in the Caribbean. But it's that moment, I never forget that call. Okay, Mike, we, we believe you. Let's rock and roll this. And, you know, so I, I don't know about you, but I try and forget the bad. I, I don't care for the travel. I don't really worry about the politics. I just live for those moments that make it, that was a good night. That was a nice conversation. That meant something to me. And then in the end, hopefully what you do means something to the company where you can see, Again, with, with Bramon, it's my biggest part of my, of my career, where you knew they employed a couple of the watchmakers because they knew they were going to have to sell X amount for that particular store or that particular market. And I did that. And, you know, I was part of that. And that, that quite spiritual, again, a little bit cheesy, but for me, it means something because at the end of the day, if that happens, I could then provide my then girlfriend maybe another night out or we can go see a concert or not worry about getting the nicer car. Not like you live for big money, but you live for moments to make things a bit easier. 
Let's talk about the United States for a minute here. Sure. You know, I'll, I think, and thank you so much for explaining all that. I think that it's it's really good to have some of the background because I want people to know what's what's on the minds of the people that are making the watches and selling the watches and talking about the watches. You have a specialty in that you are not American, but you know mm -hmm. the American market very, very well. And you're able to not only communicate effectively with retailers and customers here in America, but you're also able to translate in a sense to Europeans and people from the UK Here's, here's what America needs. Here's what's different about it. I often find that especially the Swiss and the French oftentimes have a lot of misconceptions about the American market or, in other words, the many markets within America. What are some of the best practices and tips and some of the things that you try to explain to people in Europe that they seem to not really understand that you really figured out because you've lived and worked here? Well, first of all, uh, I lived in America and now I'm back after one year, but I've lived in America for 15 years. Uh, it's given me my, my family, my life, my kids, my, my two sausage dogs. <laughs> um, but I, I had no idea. So when I started in 2007 with Ernst Benz, um, I had no idea really where to go. But I said to Leonid that I'd, I'd love it if you just give me a credit card and let's see where we go and where we can take this. And so what I found was that I didn't quite understand the US psyche because I'd only been within the Caribbean. But living there more and more, the misconception with and this is just a personal opinion. The misconception of Americans, obviously, they're loud. Uh, and that can be construed as a negative. Or it could be they might come across as, and I'd, I'd hate to say it, sometimes they could look at, oh, it's fake, but they have a nice day. And I'm like, well, when they say have a nice day, Americans mean it. And that's the biggest thing that I would always tell any European. Don't take that stereotype and, and put it in a bag or put it in your pocket. And that's how you've got to live with it. My best analogy I ever told um, my European friends was, Think of Americans as the most generous part of your family who you've never met. Maybe you started dating a girl and they invite you to the house for Thanksgiving, the most important holiday in America. They will invite you every single year if you are kind and courteous, if you, if you are honest, if you pass the sprouts to grandma and she likes you. But as soon as you let them down and you don't pass the sprouts to grandma, they will never invite you back within this watch world. I think America is based a lot, of tr a lot on trust. And they will invest their time, their effort, their money very quickly as well. Because if they, I think Americans make their minds up very quickly, good or bad. But I think if you lose that trust, it's very hard to get that back. And I think that's a good thing. Um, stereotypically, you might say New Yorkers will, you know, be, be strong and, and say, get out of the way. But I always say, well, if you're in the way of a New Yorker, just get out of the way. They've got somewhere to go. Or Midwesterners are so nice. I says they are until you let them down. You know, these stereotypes can be awful for me as well. You know, I'm a, I'm a sucker hooligan, you know, you never know. But in terms of for an American watch-centric conversation, be honest with America. Try to never let them down. Don't take them at face value. Take them as a much deeper entity because they've got number one, deep pockets, but also they will, they will take you on a journey that you were not expecting if, uh, if they believe you and trust you. And that can be the most amazing thing. And I've seen both sides. I think I've been quite lucky with, with the brands and the relationships that I've got in terms of retail that I've tried to never let anybody down. Um, and, and, but I, I've seen it and I've felt it. Uh, but that's the biggest thing that I can say, Ariel, is that Americans and America is a very honest, strong place. So just treat it with respect. That's very interesting. And it, it begs a lot of questions. I guess the first thing is, and how do they respond to all that? <laughs> I, can, I, I, I wouldn't say any names here, but I think sometimes they have to find it for themselves and make their own mistakes. Uh, and I think that's kind of happened as well. More, than, more often than not, and I, I can go back to my family, it was my dad. He came to my wedding 
And he was the same way. And he just said, you know what? They are the nicest people. And my dad is a typical middle of England, never been out of uh, Europe. You know, he grew up the town that he'll, he'll pass away and with, with, with our brilliant family. That's, that's a lot of places all over the world because you know where you're from. But for him to come to, to Florida, we were in a beautiful place to get married, but it was still the service meant more to him than, than anything else. It wasn't the sunset or the hotel. It was that everything that was done was done for me and my now wife. And he saw that it was genuine. Uh, obviously there was money exchanged at the end, but more than anything, every time someone said, how can I help you? What would you like? Uh, it was never for anything in return apart from, you know, do your job. And so my dad loved is, that. And I, I think that's But is that's, that that's different? Big. I mean, Mm-mm. there is a lot of generosity and goodwill in, in England and in yeah. Europe. Just help explain why that's, why that American personality is, is maybe distinctive than what's going on in, say, Switzerland? Well, again, not as a Swiss person, but going into Switzerland, I, I, again, I would never put anybody down in that way. But living here, you, you, you feel it more than understand it. You have to be here longer to understand it. And I've, I was speaking to a smaller brand yesterday or, or this weekend in Chicago for a, for a watch event, very small brand. They make about a thousand watches a year. And he's not been in any retail store and it was just that advice as in like, just understand them as people and that they are investing every single cent from them into you, not just the watch. The watch will always sell. If they think it's a good watch, it will sell, but they will push you if they believe in you. The, the UK, you know, we're, we're a cynical bunch in, in the nicest possible way. We're, our humor is our, is, our, is our curse sometimes, but because we don't, we're never nasty in that sense, but we can be cutting with it. Uh, and that could also show you that you're loved or respected or liked. I mean, they always say there's, there's no better friend than the one that takes you down and you can get up and give each other a hug. But when, you, when with Americans, that humor is not quite there. It's all very cut and dry. And, you know, but I think that's when sometimes it can be mistaken when you are being nice, courteous, asking for customer service or doing a business deal. Don't mess with it. You know, they are saying things for a reason. And I, I really like that. There are obviously going to be political people out there or, or, or in terms of people that might have a slight agenda to, to save a buck here and there. And that's human nature. But by all accounts, I've never met an American that didn't, that, that's lied to me in business. Um, and that's only because I've hopefully treat, treated them as equals or gone in there with, without my hand out, but with a chance. And they've, they've taken so it So a me. lot of lying going on outside of America. <laughs> that is terrible. If you say, Ariel, that's horrible. All that soliloquy, you've taken that from it. <laughs> well, look, it's, um, I'm, I'm, you know, reflecting on my own experiences, of course. And, you know, there's, of course, too many stereotypes, but people say, you know, dealing with Americans, expect this. Dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. Swiss, you'll expect this. Deal with Japanese, expect this. Deal with Italians, French, whoever. You know, there's these stereotypes, and many of them are just, you know, silly things. But once in a while, you're like, you know what? Americans do tend to be more that way. And it's true that Americans will enter um, a negotiation or relationship very open-minded uh, with with not a lot of defensiveness from the beginning, um, ready to accept fairness being a part. They, w- they will present fairness. They will expect fairness. If you violate their expectation, they will be like, oh, you're another one of them, and they will close down. And it's the exact opposite with Europe. In Europe, it starts with an enormous amount of skepticism and slowly over time open up to be friends. Um, and then it's <laughs> yes. a solid relationship. In America, it's like friends right away, but if you screw it up, I'm killing this. There's no going back. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And like, you, you, if I met another English person here in America, you'd say, where are you from? Oh, that's a horrible place. Well, who's your soccer team? Oh, they're awful. Do you want to go buy a beer? 
So that you know, this is what they do. It's what we do. But I, <laughs> I, I like I like America for business. I think it's fair. And again, I think my the majority of my adult life has been here. So I'm not going to pretend that I understand the Swiss or the English way of doing it at this level. But I do know what the Americans hopefully like. Now, how have you used some of these uh, special powers or awareness? Um, you know, in business, because again, you're very successful, you're very charismatic, you, you get people excited about a lot of watches, but you know, there are some others in the space like that. As someone who is involved in brand building, whether it's sales, new, getting, you know, uh, or getting retailers excited or communicating the brand, you know, talk a little bit about some of the strategies you employ that are a little bit different, because you are a strategic person, and you mm -hmm. like things to look natural and stuff like that, but you are very strategy-based, and I'm just curious about some of those and the things you've developed, because you and I both started in this industry in 2007, and boy, have we learned a lot of weird tricks since then. A ton of weird tricks. You still enjoy it, though, Ariel? You enjoying yourself? I think like you, it's, it's those moments that you get addicted to. You get Good. a moment of those, you get addicted to the moments of seeing that watch that you love. You get addicted to the moments of seeing other people put on that watch that they love. You get addicted to the friendships which occur because there's nothing else that would have connected you other than watches and you're really happy that you had this, you know, this opportunity. You get addicted to the fact that a lot of this is around celebration. Um, but like any other industry, it, it, it comes with its own stresses and challenges and this does happen to be an industry that like, perversely has an interest in staying behind in a lot of ways. You know, there's like uh, ha most of the body is firmly in the past, even though there's a couple of uh, fingers in, in the modern time. And so it can be difficult wanting the industry to catch up to the way things are supposed to, to be today and wanting everyone to be on the same page. It's so international. I mean, I've seen the UN, for example, and there's all these personalities and not a lot seems to get done. And it's kind of like that in the watch industry, but they don't have like the official UN forum to speak. So it's all the same personality conflicts, but no, no discussion forum, <laughs> if that makes sense. So you've gone back to that, the, the stereotypes, all these nationalities, you know, they, they are there for a reason. But then when you look at something like the UN, let's go back to my past and on a cruise ship, when I was 20 years old, there was 50 different nationalities working within that, that, that boat, that ship. But at the end of the day, every single one of those 50 nationalities had one goal, to make the 2,000 passengers happy. So, you know, that, that, that's how the world could work, should work, but it's not always like that. But with, to back, back to your question, <laughs> the tricks of the trade, a strategy, yes, I do, I do have a strategy. Uh, but I do also give myself a couple of, of rules that I think some people don't abide by, which can sometimes put you in, put you in a bit of a scenario. So for example, when I'm going towards a store, this is back in my day when I was opening brands and selling, I treated myself a bit like a vampire. Like I, I would never cross their threshold unless invited. Uh, and then if I do come in, then thank you. I, I'm at your house and then you'll give me the time. And also never set yourself any expectations. You might've traveled in my case, back in the beginning from Detroit to LA and, you know, you could do three different flights because the budgets were terrible. And sometimes the store might only give you five minutes and it's not the right buyer. But that's one chance someone gave you and you've just got to take it. And so my strategy in that sense was always a case of I'm not going in to sell, I'm going to educate. If I can get them to understand a little bit about why I love this brand, why I believe in it, why, and also let them understand that this is not just a job for me, this is my life. And I would like to give you a little bit of it. And it, it sometimes is a bit, it sounds a bit extreme, but it is a bit like that because they have to trust that you're doing it. Back to your other question with, with the American market. Another thing as well is you've got to understand the market and see if, you're, if it's ready for you or if it wants you. So when we first started in 2007, there was no red bar. There was, there was none of the, maybe there was definitely wasn't the social media like there is now, but it was starting. 
But I think the more and more I was in with, with Brahman in those 2011-12s, the tools that were there became very powerful. But it was also something which I felt you have to treat with kid gloves. For example, the forums. I don't ever want to go on there unless asked. That's not a place for a brand. But if someone's got a misconception and there's a question coming up and it gets to me, let me at least get the answer to the right person to leave that message. And if they have any questions, leave your email, leave your phone number. I think it's, I think it's huge. But with social media, you know, obviously the brands have their way of doing it. And you know, for me personally, I've always tried to be extended arm of that. And with, with my social media on that side, that, that became a, a different voice. So where I went, I would celebrate the place. For example, I'd go to a baseball game at the end of my business day and I tried to discover what that market felt like. So I do believe that America, you can find a lot about the city or the town by the music, the sport and the food. And there's nothing better like that in the middle of summer or for most of the year by going to a ball game or to a, a ballpark in the surrounding areas. And from that, you could also then find the watch community because someone would see that you go there. When they're there, you try and meet up. And if they've got a couple of friends, maybe put a credit card behind the bar. If they like the brand, you know, and this is a long game, but this could also be very quick in that sense. But also from there, where do you buy? That I buy at X store. Okay, well, if you've got a name and, you know, if you don't mind, I'll just pop some in there and say that we met. Those kind of conversations could be very, very long and drawn out, but sometimes they're the most effective because naturally that happened. And so, you know, you go back to that old adage that people buy people. Uh, and for me, I, I truly believe that. So it's, it's not magic science, Ariel. The strategy is really there, but more than anything, I had to feel like I, it was a place I could sell. I had to feel like it was a place that was going to be worth my time. And also if I felt like I could offer them something that they didn't have, and then you just have to go with the community because the community is the people that's going to buy it. And if they understand the brand because of the education, then the education turns into sales. Um, but in, in all honesty, it is as simple as that. But it, that, that also comes with a lot of hard work. You have to be consistent. You have to always answer the emails. And so when I first met my wife, I said, sometimes I might get a phone call at 10 at night. And that might be someone from the West Coast or maybe even during the summer months in Alaska. It could be a girl, for example, but it, that sales associate who I'm being conversational with, they might need me. And if that three seconds of saying, oh, can I get a strap for this in this color? Or do you know if this is available? Could mean the, the difference between that person making their bonus or not, I'm going to answer. Or it could just get to the point where if I do answer, they know they can contact me at any time and they feel trusted within me. If I don't answer because I'm watching a show or, you know, and, and you should always find time for yourself. Please let me know. I do that well. But if I don't answer because my phone goes off at five, what if that person never calls me back again and they move to the next showcase because that person will be there to answer or at least they'll know more about that brand. But that was the level of brand that I was with, Ernst Benz, Bramon at the beginning. And so those good practices will now stand me in good stead with Zodiac, you know, 140 years old. So let me get, in, get you know, all those skills that I've learned on a smaller side. Now I've got heritage behind me. Let's see what those be best practices can help me with now. I want to point out something that you mentioned that I think is important for anyone listening to realize. There's a question a lot about what does hard work in the watch industry mean? Is it, is it trying really hard? Is it being amazing with design? Is it being good leader? And a lot of it is exactly what you mentioned, Mike, and it's always being available. Working hard is, you know, leaving no stone unturned, uh, no, no plant in your garden doesn't get watered. You don't know what ultimately is going to be uh, profitable or, or come to fruition. But hard work is, on, is building every relationship to the best of your ability, 
being responsive to people. I mean, this is a service and a relationship industry. It really comes down to service and relationships. And when you are there to participate in those relationships and give that service, that's a big part of the battle. And so, like you said, taking those calls um, at, at, at seeming off hours and things like that, going the extra step to be helpful. Uh, tell me if you disagree, but that's what, in my opinion, working hard in the watch industry actually means. No, I do too. No, 100%. I mean, like I just said, that's what I've believed in. It's, it's within my soul. But if I didn't answer any of those calls and I said my phone's off at five and I leave a lovely voicemail and, you know, or, or an out-of-office email, I know someone will get back to me and probably more often than not. But it's that, I always think of that, I try to always think of that one person that might need you for that very small reason because the big stuff will come. But if you don't do the consistency, if you don't do what you say, then, you know, you're not going to get the, the rewards but I also enjoy it as well because, again, for the moments, I never forget there was this, I think she was um, Eastern European. She, she was in Alaska. She did call at a certain time and she did make that bonus. So I uh, use that analogy from, from, from experience. But when I went to Alaska I don't know, one or two months later, I mean, it was the whole team knew that I answered that phone and they tell every single customer, which I didn't realize until I saw, they told every single customer, like, if you don't like this watch or something goes wrong, that's the guy. That's the guy that will sort it for you. He'll help you. But if you do love it, that's also the guy that wants to hear it. And so that, that really warms me. And that's a long time ago, Ariel. You've just brought up some big memories. But that, that, was, that, that, that stayed with me till today. Um, and so even the trade show that I did this past weekend, it's not, it's not my role to stand behind a, a counter and, and sell, but it's also within my being to go and do that. And I feel... I feel like me again. I'm obviously in a 41-year-old body, but I feel like that younger guy who went out to all those different stores and selling that story. So it's great. All those best practices stay with you, but also become you. So let's talk about the situations where you were not able to grow. There was an opportunity. And that's a very important thing that people need to realize in the watch industry, that there's oftentimes a conflict between people that want to grow and, and people that don't want to grow. Mm -hmm. And a lot of a lot of conflict there, and my guess—I don't know—but my guess is that you've been in certain other roles, in situations where you you were in a job where you wanted to grow, you felt that you could grow, but forces out there be like, "No, Mike, you can't grow. Don't grow. Hold back," and that really frustrated you. Is is my suspicion correct? Has that happened in the past? Yeah, no, it has. Um, I don't really want to, you know, you don't name names or whatever, <laughs> but you 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 meet people that that, that trust you and ask you to do something and they ask you to, to be a part of something. And you think, well, I thought within myself that it's because of the, hopefully the things that I've told you today, the best practices, or it can be a bit cheesy, but also the energy that's within me. And not everybody receives energy the same way. Um, when it was a one-man show for Bramont for, God, almost six, seven years, you do meet you, you do meet Ariel Adams, you meet Adam Kaniotis, you meet James Lambton, you meet all these heads, these store managers. You do become the person that markets the brand without having a marketing department or sells the brand without a full sales team. You head the customer service because no one else can answer the phone because it might be closed in England or, or wherever. So you have that energy of, I got this. But also at the same time, some people don't want you for that. They want you for, this is your role. This is your box. You stay within it. And I completely understood why sometimes it didn't quite work out in that way. But I was always proud that they asked me to try. And I was all, I, I gave it the same heave-ho that I would have done with every other brand. But for me, those knockbacks or those certain times where it didn't work, 
And I'll tell you, Ariel, and I, I don't think I've ever said this in any kind of personal way. There are times where you look at your life that, you know, I've had a car crash. I've been through big breakups. My mom's had times where she, she's passed away and, or almost passed away and I've said goodbye. She's still with us, thank goodness. And then you have Very a time hard. when, no, no, she's, I mean, listen, it, 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 it spurs you to be a better man, hopefully. You've only got one chance to live, live it. But then there's a time when you can look at a job and it becomes bigger than all those scenarios. And in the end, it's not. And I had to, you know, luckily I'd, by that point, you'd met my now wife, who is the yin to my very energetic yang. She's the other side of it. She pulls me back and tells me to stop, which, which is what I probably needed. But she's also the person that said, I'm, I'm going nowhere. You know, you, I married you for this reason. All these people care for you because of who you are. And I've seen that countless times in different people that have been in similar roles to me. You can be within a role. Uh, it could be in a relationship. You could be in a job. But sometimes it's not a fit. Don't look at that as a failure. Look at it as an education. And, you know, when I, when I, when, when all of those, when, well, when that didn't quite work out, you then have to find your own path again. And I think, again, on a personal note, which again, these, these, you, you do so well with these superlative podcasts. I've really enjoyed, you know, people maybe not have understood you at some time, Ariel. And I thought that maybe throughout these years, I've tried to understand that what you've always had is a good intention and a good heart, but you also, one of us, you're, you're a geek like us and we like to talk about watches. So that's good. But when, when somebody doesn't get you, that's not a bad thing. It just means you weren't supposed to be there. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store and we carry art, apparel and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at a Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So let's talk about your latest job. It, it sounds like it comes with a lot of responsibility, and I'm guessing this, at least maybe theoretically, is the most responsibility you, you've had in a role. Is that correct? Um, I think it's, I've said that, you know, Fossil Group have this really wonderful ability to, to own this brand and they've got this responsibility to make it what it should be after 140 years. What TJ has empowered me to do now, I see it as a part of, I don't know, it, it's probably the right time for, my, for me. It's the right time for, for TJ and it's the right time for, for Zodiac and Fossil because they've now got this ability to throw this team together to knit what is an incredible brand. I think at one point, Bramon, especially at the first, maybe three years after I'd started and I'd opened up, I think around 50, 60 accounts, Caribbean, Canada, and the US, that at one minute felt like a, felt like a really special time because you'd built something from nothing or you'd been part of building something from nothing. That felt really special, like, but you also felt like you had the, the world on your shoulders but I didn't feel any weight to it. It felt great, but it wasn't quite in the end what I needed to carry on or fulfill me. And that, that ended up being my family, which is a huge part of me. With what 
I've been empowered or I've given the task with now is it seems quite fun. Um, the watches are there. The, the collection was not really f fleshed out, which we've, we're already doing right now. The customer service was, is a bit fractured. We've got best practices now to get that right globally, starting in the US and the UK and Switzerland. The, the next part is understanding the story. It's amazing. All parts of it, even the times when we were taken over in the 80s and 90s and when Fossil bought in the early 2000s, all of it means something to that brand. It's just making sure that all the parts that we've just said from stock to service to storytelling are tied together. And that's my role. So there's the sales. We have brilliant salespeople over here and we've only got a couple in the US. We've got a couple in the UK and we've got a couple of stores around, around the world. My job is to make sure they've got all the tools they need. I will also pick up the phone and talk to any retailer. And if, you know, they feel like they don't understand the story, I'll tell it. And that could be, you know, thought of as a sales pitch. And in the end, it is. But also, I think it's also for my, my role, my, my ability to get people excited, to empower the sales staff to know that this is the right store. You give it everything to them and they will sell this brand. Same with the service. Same with the guys who are you know, building the watches. Give them the faith to understand that if we build it to this next level and we, we, uh, we really take care of what the brand meant to a lot of people, we can become the true custodians of a legacy brand, a really special brand. And so, yeah, I think responsibility is huge, but not just for me. I think I'm just a part of a very small, focused team, which now has the ability to use the skill set that we've all got over the years um, to do it right. And you know, that started with TJ a few years ago when uh, Costa and, and, and the Fossil head, up, head management said, this is for you now, do the right thing for it. And he listened to people like you, you know, to Bennett Hodinkee, to, to Zach at Warner Wan. He listened to the right people and he started to do these really cool limited editions, or at least they did editions that had a piece of history or, or a colorway that meant something. And then, you know, fun started to come from that. What was beautiful at that same time as well is that Fossil knew that custodian word again came back, that they had to power it with something better. So they invested in STP. So STP then becomes 70% of the collection, which is what it is today in terms of an in-house movement for, for the majority of what we build. And so TJ had that, Fossil Group offered STP, and then we start to get logistics, distribution, the sales staff, and these amazing machine that, that Fossil has, but they'd never ever held anything as precious as what I see within this watch geek world, because I am one, uh, this legacy brand that is Zodiac. So all of the brands that all these, this, the fossil group have ever sold, they have never had something which is potentially this special. And that doesn't mean monetarily. It means the best of the group. It means inside of that watch, the best of what's been made for generations, you know, since the first Calame uh, Calibers. Calame started the brand in 1882. So, I think that's a really lovely way that you might think that on me, it's a big responsibility, but I do think that we all have a part to play in bringing this back because it's deserved, it's deserved of it. And by meeting, you know, the watch collectors and the vintage Zodiac collectors and now seeing the new generation of watch collectors that see what this could be for their collection or you know, their first watch or part of, you know, what they put inside of their watch box. I love it because it has a, what is a place that maybe I never thought it was when I heard that it was owned by a group that was owned by fashion, uh, a fashion group. But then you look at the industry and you go, well, you know, Omega and Breguet are, are looked after by Swatch, which essentially have, you know, plastic, really cool colored watches. And 
My first watch was a fossil. I'm sure many of your listeners, the first watch was a fossil. We've all been through diesel or you've bought your girlfriend a Michael Kors when you've been through Macy's or some of these department stores. The difference now is that all of that wonderful entrepreneurship that Costa and, and Tom back in the day when they founded the brand Fossil have put within these wonderful people. I'm looking out at empty cubicles where I'm doing this podcast while I'm sitting in the Zodiac office. We have something special. So long again, long story short, I think it's more than just me. I think it's everybody. And you're included in that because you're, you're part of telling our story and you've You've even made a watch or, or designed a watch that's part of our current lineup. So we've all got a part to play. Yeah, I, I appreciate the sort of inclusive way you're talking about it. You know, I've always seen you as someone that probably should be in a leadership position where, you know, <clears throat> you're only one person, right? But yeah. you, you hope that with the right people around you, your enthusiasm is infectious, right? And I know that you like to rally people. I, like, I know that you like to excite people with a vision and a path and a road. So hopefully you'll be able to, to do more and more of that. That's what I hope for you um, at, at the role. W where do you want the brand to be, right? Because there's a lot of different mm, kinds of watch brands, a lot of different price points. The history that, that the Zodiac brand has could take it in a lot of different directions. You know, it has a great value proposition right now, a particular theme. How would you change, expand, amplify? You know, I'm just curious. Well, when the brand came back, you know, the first as in like the mid-2000s, the first real watches that were coming out were not the Super Seawolf. They did the Sea Dragon. And I was going back through my research of this brand and you were looking at what the Fossil Group were trying to bring within this new iteration of, of Zodiac. The, the name Seawolf had been lost. It was mismanaged. And so the new Super, super, super Seawolf came out because of obviously we, could, we can use that. The name aerospace had been lost, but we, you know, we bring the DNA back with colors and design. How I see this brand and what I've been talking about with TJ these last six months is that the colorways and the limited editions that are bright and bold and beautiful should always be a part of Zodiac. What my hope and what we've tried to do over the last few months is to have people within your space maybe look at the brand a little closer because we've, we've gone a little bit, we've touched a little bit about STP. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great movement for the money. And if you look at the Super Seawolf, uh, the Skin 53, the Skin 53 compression, um, the 40 millimeter uh, compression, which is the biggest part of the collection where your aquamarine dream is within. And then you look at the Olympus. Those three parts of our collection are all in-house movements. Then you add the Pro Diver, which is 42 millimeters. And even through all those different collections, you find color, you find boldness, you find style. But if you peel it back, the hands, the bezel, the case, the movement are traditional, are correct. All it is, is that we can have an interpretation like yours, for example, that saw the Bahamian Ocean, uh, the color of the sea, or you can look at what Worn and Wound did and you throw color from the 90s, or you can look at, say, something what Hadinki might have done, which is a colorway that had never been brought back in this iteration and done uh, beautifully. And I think that what I would like a lot of our collectors and your, your listeners and readers to know is that when you... When you go to Zodiac's website, what we've done before is really hype that color. I want you to look at the Super Seawolf Skin 53 and see how it's made or how it feels. But the, because we've now been able to grow, say, a core line of 20 watches, then instead of just developing the hype and the colors, we do that alongside core. Because we could be on these brilliant online retailers and it is 2022. We're, you know, we lived in a world of Amazon for three years and, and home delivery food services. But I still believe that you have tactility within this beautiful industry and nothing feels better 
than somebody putting a watch on your wrist, you turning it over and saying, actually, that bloody suits me. And so what we've, what we've built out is a new POS, which is a point of sale. It might not be, resonate with some of the, the listeners out there, but to build something that looks beautiful inside of a showcase and represents the brand well is really hard. And so by the start of next year, we've, we've developed this really lovely black finished um, leather wrapped, uh, lovely wood Zodiac display case, which can now house a core collection. By having the core, we can do what you know, a good watch brand should do, which means there's always going to be watches within that store. Or if it's an online retailer, there's always going to be a consistent story to come back to. So when a limited edition come and goes, you don't have the FOMO, you don't have the fear of missing out. You go, actually, that one came from this. I've discovered this part of the collection and it's consistent and it grows. Currently, well, TJ told me that last year we made and sold 6,000 watches. We sold every single thing that we made. Um, I talked to the guys at STP and I talked to the guys in Antima who make the cases in Switzerland. And you can see behind their offices that there is a ton of space, empty space, because where we build our 6,000 watches, we've built this huge facility to grow. Now, I don't think that we could ever be a, you know, an IWC or so, or, or even an Oris, you know, but, or, you know, you, you seem so far away, but we have 25 points of sale currently. Whereas one of some of those brands can have a hundred retail points in every single major country. So my hopes and dreams are that we get this first bit right, Ariel, that we get the core correct and it resonates. And then every single release that can come out for the rest of this year, we've got a few to come. They can see the fun within it, but also understand where we're going. And then when 2023 comes along, we can open a few more retailers, uh, be it here, the UK and parts of Europe. Then we can spread to to Asia and Australia, but do it to a point where every single person who goes into a store or discovers Zodiac for the first time or rediscovers it from what they knew, that they know the brand that is 140 years old. It's a traditional family owned for a hundred years uh, with tradition and heritage. Um, it's always been different. You know, it's always tried to be innovative in case shapes and styles like the astrographic, but again, bring it down to something now. Just let people understand what's now because we will have kid gloves with it as we grow. But next year, we get to the point where people understand us. And I think for the longest time, I think a lot of people, me included, and you know, speaking to some of the customers out there, there's a lot of people out there that didn't quite understand what Zodiac was trying to be. But now we've got direction. Can I offer just one bit of advice? And it, wouldn't, again, it wouldn't be you without a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's an interesting tendency for brands at this stage to, to increase the price, right? The tendency is to say, okay, we're doing great. Now let's increase the price. And I've seen that hurt a lot of companies in a lot of ways. It's the epitome of thinking short term. It's the epitome of misunderstanding your consumer. I can just off the top of my mind mention at least half a dozen very well-known brands that have had major problems not because of overproducing, but because of overpricing when they didn't need to, going too high too fast. And I understand why it happens, but I guess my advice is resist the temptation as much as possible to increase the price points uh, saying, oh, now we're going to sell to a different market. Um, what I think is the best thing to do is say, you know what, we're selling to a particular demographic right now, let's continue to give them a better and better product mm -hmm. that competitors will have challenges you know, replicating or, or, or being competitive with. But don't say, oh, well, we're such an awesome brand now, we can sell to a completely other demographic. That's risky and hard and oftentimes fails. 
in what we've seen happen so much, where a brand literally prices itself out of the current demographic it's selling to in the hopes that some other demographic uh, will buy it or even more foolishly think that the same, demo, uh, uh, the same um, demographic is willing to spend more, right? Like if you're spending $500 on a watch, that doesn't mean you're also willing to spend $1,000 on a watch. And that is a major fallacy uh, that the watch industry is, is, is engaged in, especially in America, where consumers are very um, specific within price segments often, much, much, much of the time. So the the... The interest in trying to make more money through increasing um, the, the, the margins um, is so dangerous and hurts a lot of people. So increase volume, but sell to the same people at about the same price point uh, as much as you possibly can. Uh, I'll say this now because I know you've got a big listenership, but I also know that you speak to a lot of people. That's one of the reasons why I joined. Um, when I was speaking to TJ about the plan of it all, you look at the prices and then you hear the word in-house movement and you know the brands that are out there and what they might charge, no matter what the movement might be. As is the STP 1-11. It's, uh, you know, the ETA and Solita, you can have that you know, base level. You know, we're coming in with that, a really good 44-hour power reserve that's got anti-magnetic qualities, which we love. But the price point starts at 895 the uh, Skin 53 is 11.95, or uh, you know, and then the majority of the brand, nothing goes over 16.95. With that, we have, for me, one of the best brands in the industry for you know competing with that. In a store, for example, what's your first mechanical watch? Let's go to Seiko. Of course, we've all done it. But then, where do you go next? What's the level that you jump to? You're going to find some brilliant brands, some big brands, but it's there entry-level price point, or you're going to find some, some newer brands that maybe can't go into retail because the margins are so strong. The beautiful thing with, with what this price point does and what excited me so much is that Fossil see this as the best of them. They make a lot more money than they will ever do on Zodiac with the licenses deals or some of the great, the great brands that they've, that they've partnered with and, and celebrated. Uh, and, you know, the fashion world, you wouldn't realize the size of it. You know, it can, it can blow your mind some of the, it, because there's, billions of people on this earth and they've all got a wrist and they might not all want to spend five grand on a watch but for zodiac and for the group to look after it like this this is going to be the best of them and at some points they might do a price point to the detriment of what the watch might cost but it's within what they want this price point to be where we see themselves we where we see ourselves in the market and i'm looking around me in the room that i'm in now and you know all the new releases that will come for the rest of the year nothing and um, we just released the titanium, which is just over $2,000. Nothing else is over two grand. And so I sit here, you know, 16, 17 years into the industry with these pieces of paper tacked to the wall, knowing that we've got something really special at a point, at a price point that can go into a lot of retail stores or the right amount of retail stores and really, you know, become that watch that people might look to as maybe not aspirational, but it could be. It might not be somebody's first watch, but it might be that one guy's watch that goes, what could be within that conversation, we hope? Or it could be that watch that maybe isn't that much money, but somebody has uh, a little bit more expendable cash and you know, hitting, hitting the lake or going to the beach and wants that one watch that suits their boat, their, their board shorts or their towel. Um, but the lovely thing about what we're trying to do now, what we will continue to do, Ariel, and I'm so glad that you brought up prices, build the best watch possible for the money and not only do that, but also get better with quality. Um, I'll give you an example. The, the Skin 53, it really is brilliant. 44 hour power reserve. But for some people, the loom, you know, it's a little darker. It's been, it's an orange loom. It's designed to, 
um, to look more vintage. It's designed to look like it would have done back in the 50s and 60s. But as we go forward, maybe that will change as the new iteration comes in. Better loom or, you know, the... You know, the anti-magnetic qualities by changing the spring on the inside, we get a chance to to not feel like you're going to ruin your watch or, or magnetize it. We don't need to do that to keep the prices at the same level they are now, but it is the right thing to do. And that will happen. Or, you know, we've got the the, the GMT uh, or our world timer. That's so proud right now. We've got to a point we've sold enough that STP can develop our GMT movement. And that should come within the next year, 18 months. So there's a lot of exciting things, but Completely agree. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that it would be doing that. But I've been through a few brands that have always increased prices and it always seems at an inopportune time. And you know, back in 2005, when I was working on cruise ships and I was a child, uh, <laughs> it felt like a child, I was selling this one brand, which again, we should keep nameless, but it was five grand. And it was a moon phase and it was brilliant. And it, it was absolutely brilliant for that money. And they went from five to eight grand, I think it was. And the brand died. No one wanted to buy it at that because they were so happy with where it was and it was just brilliant. And you see that brand's gone through all kinds of dips and lulls. It's come back now at a different lower level price point and it's a different brand. But you wonder, what if they'd have just kept it as it was? What if they'd have been more appropriate and not gone for that extra three grand at the time? Um, and I think that Zodiac and especially myself and the team around the Zodiac team, we don't want to be talked about in that way. I'm, I'm glad that you had a lot to say about that because you agree that in this industry, price is an issue. And if you think about most of the issues that the watch industry has faced, a lot of it relates to pricing, mm -hmm. discounting, pricing too high, price arbitrage, who's, you know, who's funding the production. Money is so at the heart of this industry. I, I know that sounds silly because money, of course, is the heart of any industry, but it seems like financial decision makings and risk aversion seem to be so pronounced in the watch space in a way that doesn't seem to make sense in what is essentially the art and fashion market. No, it is. I mean, every you know, money's always the route to all evil, but money can also, you know, one guy's $100 could be the next guy's 100000 So it's all relative. And you could, you know, take someone like Ed Sheeran, for example, you know, he can, he, could, he can afford whatever he wants and he buys whatever he likes. But at the end of the day, if you hear him talk about it, he knows that he's lucky enough to be able to afford it. And so you can look at, all these brands, and I'll take Bramont, for example, for the years and years that I was with it, and also for the years subsequently, you know, they say, why is that watch five grand when it's an Etta movement? And I've always been like, well, look at the steel. It's, you know, 2,000 Vecas. Look at the, the sapphire. There's, there's 16 layers of anti-reflective coating. Look at the case construction protecting the movement. Look at how long it took to design that knurling on that crown or why the testing that went into it. That's just one example. And so when I say that's five grand, it's five grand. So it might not be for somebody because they've looked, take, take a, a box of cornflakes, for example. You can go to the local supermarket and the local brand and you pick up a Kellogg's cornflake pack. They are the same. You can look, pick up any watch and go, that's sapphire, that's sapphire, that's steel and steel, that's an Etta, that's this. It's just how it's packaged, what it means to you. So money is, is a hard conversation for me, Ariel, because I do think that what somebody who's designed it in effort and put it into it, they know what they could charge. Yes, at some point it can be inflated. But it might not be for that other person. Same with how you might look at a 42 millimeter wrist when you are oh, today, it's got to be 39. It's got to be 12 millimeters thick. No, it doesn't have to be. It just, that's the watch for you. And that's where you're comfortable of buying. But you can find all these different brands, all these different price points, all these different shapes and sizes. And in the end, it'll come back to what we said with the UN or that cruise ship 
where there are all these different people that want different things, but in the end, they go for that same goal, that same finishing product that it makes them happy. So you've got 700 brands out there, give or take, and you know it's all following or chasing the crown. But at the end of the day, a lot of people want to look at what suits them. So if we can, at our price point, be part of that conversation, I'm happy. Um, but yes, in the end of the day, money does matter. Price does matter. Um, but we will, we will continue to do the price points we are, but we'll try and be a better brand for it. Money does indeed matter. Um, we have time for like sort of one last uh, areas of questions here. And I think we should talk about the next generation. We're both parents now, and we recognize that the watch industry, for whatever reason, has lived on past many predictions of its death. Mm -hmm. Kids these days are never going to hear about wristwatches. We've been hearing that since you know the late 90s and things like that. Uh, but kids today <laughs> are hearing about wristwatches a lot. It's very strange how timepieces are part of pop culture right now in a way that I think is great for you and me. Yeah. It definitely was something that no one could predict you know, even 10 years ago now. So the question is, for, for Zodiac in particular, what, is, what, are, what are some of the ways that you'd like kids to learn about the brand? I'm not saying they're buying it when they're a kid, but I think it's important you know, to get them young, have people be introduced to the brand at a young age, and then maybe return to it later in life with some familiarity to buy it. How do you think kids should learn about the brand? Well, that's one heck of a question. And also, thanks for making me feel old, kid, these days. Uh, but you're right. Hey, hey, we're, 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 we're separated by months and age, okay? We just got to be realistic. We have responsibilities now. We're role models. People are listening to us. Oh, well, do you know, I was, again, at this trade show this last weekend, and probably the same as what I'm like with my kids. The, the dads walked in, boys and girls, and they had flick flock, flick flacks, fossils, um, small watches, you know, the, the first thing anybody can ever do is just help their kids understand that this should represent a little bit about who they are. Now it could have Barbie on the, on the dial. It could, it could be digital. It could be one of those little wooden, or the, it could be flick flack, which is, you know, one of those great watches that help you tell time as a kid. For me, it's just how I would talk about it. Daddy wears a watch. Daddy's always got a watch on. Uh, Daddy, what's that watch? Oh, that's the watch that I was wearing when you were born. Really, tell me about it. We all have a response. We all have a responsibility to tell a little bit of our own story. Um, but in terms of a brand, if we can excite the parents, be it you know moms or dads, um, then we've done our job. Because if the moms and the dads appreciate what the watch is on their wrist, it'll be part of you know their makeup. Their it'll be part of their 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 outfit. And so I do think that no matter how lovely that question is, I do think it's going to be hard for a brand to talk to the kids. But the more watches we can put on people's wrists and they see the fun within it. So, you know, my, my daughter loves the one that's the, the white and blue, which was nicknamed the Mojito, uh, the GMT. And she just loves the fact that daddy wears a green watch. But then I'll say, well, look at this. And then I say, can I turn this? And it's the crown or fiddling with the bezel. You know, don't let them feel like, oh, do you know what? You've given me it. Do you know what it is? Don't let your kids feel like what they're holding is too precious because it's precious because these things should be built to last. And I love my kids turning the bezel on a dive watch. I like them holding it. I mean, yes, say be careful, but there's that thing. Don't touch my watches. Always let them touch your watches. There's my answer for you, Ariel. Always let your kids touch your watches. Yeah. Okay. So kids need uh, hands-on time with the products, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've got... that's really what it comes down. To. They have to see and touch it somehow. Every time we, we just left England a few weeks ago, and it was my my six-year-old's last day at that English school, and I was wearing the watch, 
that she, I was wearing when she was born and I was holding her hand and I took a picture of my wrist and put it on Instagram, hashtag time matters. It, it does because these watches will be with you at moments that matter. And my kids know that. Um, I think I said this to you before we press record. I met the distributor or the, the son of the distributor who, who distributed Zodiac in Denmark for 30 years. And he told me about his dad's collection and we ended up getting on a Zoom and I saw it and it was incredible. But he also had the pictures of his dad with Mr. Uh, Calame in the factory in Laloc. He had the certificates of some of the biggest deals that he'd done over that time that were framed. And I was thinking, that is my kids. They could look back and, you know, hopefully they go, well, daddy, daddy was a watch guy. And this are, this, these are the watches that mattered to him. And then, so it, it can carry on, but maybe not in a, this level of let's get the kids rocking and rolling. But I do think that if they are seeing it on your wrist and you let them know why you wear it, and that they can touch it because it means something to you because, you know, that's who daddy is or mommy is. And that's brilliant. You know, the funny thing is I watch my son try to understand why I wear a watch. Like, he doesn't always ask, but I can see he's trying to figure it out. Because, you know, kids, they want to know the utility of the tools. Not just what we wear and what we have, but, you know, what, what it does. And <clears throat> the questions he asks are interesting. He's like, is that water, you know, like water resistance? Oh. Like, can you swim with it? Like, yes. He's always asking that. He's like... You know, does it do anything other than tell the time? And like, he's trying to figure out why we wear it. And for me, I'm a special case because I have watches around everywhere all the time. But I'm not pushing them on him. He has some watches. He wears them once in a while. He knows he's not ready yet. But it's just fascinating to see from a child's perspective, um, understanding what adults do with it. And, you know, 50 years ago, it was, well, they need to tell the time. And today, what you said is, well, it needs to be something that tells a very, you know, special message about the person wearing it and explains how you're an individual and what your personality is like. Like, that's a very nuanced topic that even young adults don't always realize. Mm -hmm. So to have a kid wrap their mind around, well, you know, it's a status symbol and a toy and a piece of jewelry and a piece nah, of the past yeah. and also fashion. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, I, it, I mean, we've got, we, we're all going to find our own way. I mean, I'll make fun of my parents for not knowing how to turn the camera on of, a, of an iPad where... At the end of the day, they taught me how to use a spoon. So the kids will teach us more than we can teach them. And um, yeah, I'm excited for the journey. But on a Zodiac side, um, they're, they're, you know, I've, I've come back to Texas and my family have supported me in this. So yeah, they'll learn more about this brand because we're here and you know, I talk about it a lot and they'll hear this kind of podcast. Um, but yeah, it's, it should be fun and they'll, they'll see that with their, their parents. Do you think there could be a... Zodiac version kind of of the swatch by Omega. Think of it this way. You have the whole fossil division <laughs> with a sort of lower end. Why not have a kid's version? The fossil by and Zodiac, it's like a kid's version of a Zodiac watch. Well, if you go back to some of the early days in 2001 and <clears throat> when Fossil acquired the brand, there were some, some pretty fashionable plasticky looking watches then. And like I said at the beginning, there was still, it's still part of the history and it was there for a reason. So you can never say never. All I know is that for the next bit, foreseeable future, if we can get this old girl going again, uh, I think it could be uh, really special. But that, that means going back to the original days of artisanry, good movements, great design, but we'll also throw some color in it. But yeah, I can't see that being a problem in the future, can you? But uh, I don't think it should be just yet. I, I agree. Got to work on it. Mike, just please let everyone know where you recommend that they check out 
more about Zodiac watches and anything else that you want to plug? Yeah, thank you. So it's an ever-evolving uh, website, but please give it some time. But it's zodiacwatches.com. It's a, a really lovely place to find out what, what we're doing and what's currently in stock is always going to be on zodiacwatches.com. Uh, the Instagram, obviously, at zodiacwatches. Um, but if you want to see in between what's going on with the brand on myself and where we're going to grow it, at Mike Pearson 6. But um, this last couple of weeks, we've launched a new titanium, Pro Diver, uh, which won't be around for much longer. And we've got a brand new blue and white uh, Super Sea Wolf, which I'm sure you'll see out on Ariel's website soon. But every month for the rest of this year, and we're in July right now, 2022, we are going to be hopefully bringing something exciting out to tell uh, the Zodiac story. And uh, yeah, we're 140 years old this year. So instead of throwing a party and having some cakes and doing that one-off watch, we're going to be bringing out a selection of watches that can showcase what we can do for the future, be it material, be it dials, be it color. Uh, and so thank you for the support that has given us, that's gotten to this point, um, but also uh, come along for the ride for the next bit. It could be, could be a ride. I just want to say that the Titanium Pro Diver is actually very, very cool. I have uh, quite, quite, quite an interesting timepiece, not something that I expected from the brand, but really neat. Mike Pearson, thank you so much from Zodiac Watches, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.